welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. If you want to support Counterpunch, the best way to do that is to get a subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That way you get access to all of our exclusive content. Remember, folks, this is basically the print magazine now online. We've discontinued the print magazine and taken even more content, put it behind a little paywall just like everybody else is doing these days and it's there for you counterpunch is unlike any other space on the left online you have competing ideas competing perspectives all of which are welcome in counterpunch and providing that platform is something that we've been doing for nearly 30 years if you appreciate that get that cp plus subscription and also consider getting some books from counterpunch including from the wonderful author that i have with me today whose brand new book is available from counterpunch we're going to talk about it he is the incomparable Michael Hudson. He is back with us. I just realized in talking to him before we started recording that it's been like seven years since he was on this show. So long overdue appearance. Michael Hudson is the president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends. Uh, He's an economist and an author. You probably already all know him, but the book probably most famously, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire. That is a classic one that has shaped a lot of our thinking. And of course, the most recent book, published by Counterpunch, The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism, available from Counterpunch. Michael Hudson, welcome back. Well, it's good to be here, Eric. Thank you so much for giving me some time and for this really, really important book, because it provides the kind of uh, long-term perspective that I think we really need to understand everything that has happened economically in the, I guess, the modern period. So let's begin by talking about that. The book began as a series of lectures around U.S. globalization, China, the role of China and its development, but it kind of expanded from there, talking about finance capitalism versus industrial capitalism. So I guess maybe we could start there and have you explain this uh, juxtaposition position? What are the differences? How do we understand these two ideas? Well, most textbooks talk about industrial capitalism as if uh, the function of banks is to make loans to uh, factories, to uh, uh, build plant and equipment and hire more labor uh, to produce goods and uh, keep the economy going. But uh, it, And that's what everybody expected banks to do in the late 19th century. Uh, They expected uh, banks to stop uh, just lending to governments and uh, uh, being uh, predatory and uh, somehow become part of the industrial economy. And uh, that was happening in Germany until World War I. But after World War II, uh, you had the rentiers fight back. Uh, You had uh, uh, banks uh, merge with real estate. The fight of classical economics and of uh, industrial capitalism was to get rid of the landlord class, to get rid of everything that increased the cost of living to workers so that they could pay workers less, not not to lower workers' living standards because they knew that uh, if you're going to hire labor and you want high productivity labor, it has to be well-fed, well-educated, well-dressed, and have uh, good housing. Uh, But the uh, industrial class, certainly in America and in Germany, wanted government to pick up as many of these costs as possible. They wanted government to pay for education. And that's what you had in the United States. Uh, In England, they wanted government to pay for health care. And it was a conservative prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli. 
that said health, health is everything. That's what we really have to do. So you had public health, you had uh, public pensions in Germany under Bismarck uh, to help uh, build up uh, the uh, the industrial working class. And uh, the objective was to make every industrial economy into a low-cost economy by getting rid of the rentiers, getting rid of the landlords. You don't need a class just collecting income without making contributing to production. You don't need a banking class. You don't need monopolists. Well, all uh, everybody thought in the late 19th century that industrial capitalism was evolving naturally into socialism. And uh, there were many different kinds of socialism. There was Christian socialism, anarchist socialism, uh, Marxian socialism, uh, uh, communa, uh, co-op socialism, but one one form or another, everybody thought that the government was going to pick up uh, natural monopolies and basic needs, and uh, all of that changed after World War One, and really changed after 1980 with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, and uh, by that time the uh, financial class had uh, merged with the real estate class. Uh, as land landlords were phased out uh, because of uh, uh, taxes and uh, uh, the, the whole political shift, d- democracy, uh, you had private uh, owner-occupied housing. But if you're an individual, how are you going to get a house? You have to go to a bank. And so while uh, industrial capitalism had gotten rid of the landlord class, uh, capitalism still had economic rent. But instead of being paid to the landlord class, it's now paid to the banks in the form of interest. Uh, and in fact, most of the economic surplus today isn't paid in profit, uh, uh, isn't uh, taking the form of profits. It's taking the form of uh, interest payments and financial charges. And in fact, if you're a credit card company, your late fees and penalties uh, give even more profit than the interest rate uh, and the gross uh, national income and product accounts treat uh, late fees and penalties and interest as if it's a contribution to production. And they pay count all the money going to monopolies and to landlords as a contribution to production uh, and output, uh, where actually it's a transfer payment. It's a, an overhead charge, which is how the classical economists treated it all. So somehow, instead of having industrial capitalism evolving into socialism, we've had finance capitalism whose policy is not to raise living standards, but to impose an IMF type program of austerity. And that's what we have in the United States today, especially since 2008 and the financial crash, the American economy, the European economy have been in a debt deflation. Even though our prices are going up, the prices that are going up uh, are monopoly prices for the uh, energy industry, uh, monopoly prices for medical care, but uh, the economy uh, households are left with less and less money after paying uh, for finance, after paying for insurance, and after paying for real estate. They have less and less to spend on goods and services, so that's why the economy is being squeezed today. And my book explains how this transformation took place. And we're not in the kind of uh, capitalism that uh, uh, is in the textbooks uh, and not really what Marx and the socialists expected to see. Marx in volume three described 
the horror story of what would happen with finance capitalism. And then uh, he expressed the hope that, well, industrial capitalism is going to prevent this from happening. And uh, fortunately, with industrial capitalism, we're going to make the banks part of uh, the uh, financing real production. But that's not what banks do. Banks make loans mainly against assets and property that's already in place. The 80% of the loans are real estate mortgage loans. The rest are corporate takeover loans, speculation loans, loans that are collateralized by stocks and bonds. And uh, of course, that's what the American Central Bank has been uh, spending uh, $9 trillion just on uh, uh, collateralized by stocks and bonds and junk mortgages uh, and, and junk bonds. Uh, so uh, we're having a perversion of everything that uh, capitalism uh, promised to be. And uh, it turns out that the road to serfdom, uh, the literal road to serfdom, is uh, a st- uh, not a strong state like Hayek said, but a state that's too weak to control the financial sector and uh, uh, steer it to, to serve the economy as a whole. Oh, Michael, we're going to get to the Austrian boys in a few minutes. But before we can jump over to Austria and uh, some of these other larger historical questions, I just want to deviate for two seconds just to illustrate the point you're making that now we're in a period, just as you mentioned, since 2008, where this process of this sort of financialization of these uh, assets and rent uh, extraction has reached a sort of uh, uh, you know zenith or something where the financial institutions themselves have become the literal landlords, buying up the real estate and then turning around and renting it out. So it's not just lending of money for individuals to have mortgages. They are literally buying the land and the buildings. That's right. Uh, And that is a result largely of uh, uh, what happened in the Obama administration. Uh, The Obama uh, really took, uh, at the time he decided to bail out the banks, and evict uh, 7 million American families. At the time, he decided not to write down the debts to the real levels, but to to keep the fraudulent junk mortgages on the book. Uh, Americans' home ownership rate was 69% of Americans owned their own homes. Now it's down to 61% as of last year, and it's plunging uh, probably towards uh, 55%, uh, way, way down. And the reason is that uh, Obama uh, directed the central bank to uh, lower interest rates to uh, such a low rate that it would keep the stock market and the bond market and the real estate market inflated. The policy of the central bank since 2008 has been asset price inflation. Uh, to uh, and all of this nine trillion dollars uh, has been spent just to support uh, the the stocks and bonds held by the wealthiest ten percent of the of Americans who own seventy two percent of the stock market and much of the bond market. Well, now that interest rates are, are were down to zero, uh, uh, you had a completely you had the emergence of these companies you've just described, like Blackstone and uh, the private capital companies. And they've said, well, we can't make our money just by lending anymore because the interest rates are so low because of the Fed. Uh, let's uh, what we can do now that, that uh, the economy is being uh, deflated by the uh, post-Obama policies. Let's just begin to buy up real estate ourselves, and you have more and more real estate being bought up by private capital companies without borrowing money uh, because they say we can't even make 
uh, as much money as uh, we would have to pay as a mortgage rate. But we can buy up property and begin to monopolize property. And we can, uh, now that uh, the financial class has replaced the old landlord class, now uh, we uh, can now shift back and become the new landlord class. And that's, you're right, that's exactly what's happening. Rents are rising, uh, the homeless rates are rising, uh, the evictions here in New York City are rising. Uh, if you take a subway, you're going to find a lot of homeless people uh, sleeping on the uh, uh, on the seats there. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, the homeless camps are rising all over the United States as this is occurring. So your book talks a lot about financialization, and there's a word that is used, and maybe it's overused in our modern lexicon that I think is relevant here, and I would just ask you to define it to help us because it's so nebulous sometimes, neoliberalism. We hear the term neoliberalism over and over again, neoliberal policies, et cetera. What is neoliberalism? Can you define it for us? And is it just a synonym for a financialized economy or is there more to it? Is it about the international flow of capital? How would you describe neoliberalism? Well, neoliberalism uh, has always meant uh, uh, get rid of the state. It means reduce the state. And uh, the liberals in the 19th century wanted to get rid of the state when it was controlled by the landlord class, the House of Lords in England, the upper uh, upper uh, uh, parla uh, House of Parliament in Europe, or the Senate in the United States. Liberalism was to get rid of the uh, hereditary landlord and uh, monopoly class uh, uh, to get a free market. But neoliberalism reverts this. Neoliberalism say, we want to get rid of any state that is strong enough to regulate finance, to regulate monopolies, or to protect uh, the public interest against uh, the rentier class. So neoliberalism is the counter-revolution against classical economics and against the whole dynamic of industrial capitalism, which was uh, trying to get rid of the rentier class. Uh, that it's basically a counter-revolution. So that would be Milton Friedman pushing back on John Maynard Keynes, or is that an oversimplification? No, that's pretty much it. Uh, when uh, Friedman said uh, the uh, corporations should not uh, take into account uh, the public interest, uh, he uh, added that uh, the government itself uh, should not uh, take into account the public interest. The job of the government, he said, is to simply let uh, everybody make as much money as they can, however they can. And of course, uh, the, the big advocates of uh, uh, neoliberalism are the criminals, the gangs, the gangsters, because they, they don't want the police. Well, the monopolists don't want the regulatory antitrust police. Uh, the drug companies don't want uh, any kind of uh, anti-monopoly. Anti uh, so it, essentially, you have what's called a free market. And a free market means uh, the wealthiest people that dominate the market and uh, that uh, the, the, the uh, supply of credit, the management of the economy, that, that allocates credit and who gets what should shift from uh, Washington uh, to Wall Street. It should shift from the government to the financial sector and the financial sector should uh, essentially do the planning. Well, the problem with this is the financial sector lives in the short run. So neoliberalism means uh, only look for the next uh, three months the next year's uh, balance sheet, because uh, the uh, free market is so complex, you don't know what's going to happen. 
Well, of course, if you're managing it from Wall Street, you do know what's going to happen, but you don't want to tell people uh, exactly what's going to happen. So are neoliberalism and financialization intimately intertwined in that way? Can one exist without the other? Uh, neo, uh, it, it is the financial sector that has uh, pushed uh, neoliberalism because the financial sector uh, wants to prevent any government from controlling uh, uh, the supply of credit. Uh, just compare the U.S. system to uh, China's system, for instance. What makes China unique is doing what uh, industrial capitalism in the 19th century hoped would, would occur. Uh, the government creates the credit, and by creating money and the credit uh, with the Bank of China, uh, that uh, it creates credit to spend into the economy, to build uh, high-speed railroads, to build housing. Uh, China's uh, banks do not make money for corporate takeovers uh, or to, uh, uh, for speculative purposes, but for the real economy. Uh, neoliberalism uh, tries to uh, essentially make money financially because that's the quickest way to make it. Uh, and uh, neoliberalism uh, focuses on uh, creating credit, not to create new means of production, uh, but to buy existing means of production. And this began already uh, before World War I, uh, when the Federal Reserve was uh, created. Uh, it, took, it, it took out of the Treasury all of the functions the Treasury had, and the Treasury uh, representative was not even allowed on the Federal Reserve. Everything was changed, was uh, shifted uh, basically to Wall Street and uh, Philadelphia and Boston and other uh, uh, financial centers. So, and the, the, uh, the, at that time, banks were known as the mother of trusts. If you wanted to make money financially, you would buy all the different uh, copper companies and you'd make a copper trust. You, you'd merge them. You'd buy up all, all of the steel companies and make the steel trust to charge monopoly prices. The, the easiest way to make money uh, is uh, not to produce, but to uh, be a rent extractor, uh, be a monopolist, uh, and get in a position where people have to buy uh, uh, what you're producing uh, and uh, don't have any uh, regulatory agency to prevent you from charging whatever you want for basic needs, like you're seeing in healthcare, education, and everything that's driving the economy into debt. So the effect of neoliberalism is to drive more and more families into debt. Uh, and the more debt they have, the less money they have to spend on goods and services. So we end up looking like uh, a country that has to borrow from the IMF uh, going into an austerity program. You just uh, touched on it, but let's explore it a little bit further. Can you explain a little bit for our listeners, especially younger listeners and viewers who didn't live through the period, how the Reagan-Thatcher period entrenched the phenomenon that you're describing, how it sort of put all of this into overdrive? Well, let's begin in England. Uh, the uh, After uh, World War II, uh, uh, the government of England had uh, undertook a huge... Uh, public housing program. Uh, and they developed uh, most of the uh, basic utilities as public enterprises so that they could provide telephone service, railway service, a bus service, uh, and, and housing at a low cost. Uh, Thatcher said, let's sell everything off. And uh, she, the first thing she sold off was British Telephone. And she sold off the company at such a low rate 
that uh, uh, all the customers were allowed to buy a few shares in them and they could double their money overnight because they underpriced uh, the shares that they sold to British Telephone. Well, of course, the big, uh, the underwriters were given enormous uh, commissions. Uh, they'd usually, underwriters, uh, uh, the banks who said, we will uh, promise you'll get X amount for the stock that we sell, uh, they usually get a 3% commission because they have to do research on little companies. But now the biggest companies in England, the commanding heights were sold off and at hu- not at huge commissions and the big underwriters would buy uh, British Telephone. I, I don't remember the uh, exact ni- uh, numbers, but let's so it was issued at $3 a share. It uh, doubled to $6 a share that day, $12 a share the next day. All of the wealthiest banks got huge fortunes. Uh, Thatcher then said, let's privatize all the housing. Uh, your public, uh, you can sell your public housing. And all of a sudden, instead of uh, uh, housing being uh, available to people at low rents they could afford, uh, the, there was a realist, everybody began, there was a, began to grab for the real estate, which is now so expensive that workers in London can't afford to live in London. They have to live outside London. And uh, that means they have to take a train or a bus in. Well, uh, the, the uh, very soon after Thatcher took over, uh, the, uh, the wealthiest lady in England became the daughter of a bus driver because Thatcher privatized uh, the bus lines. And uh, uh, the, uh, the father of uh, uh, the bus, one of the bus drivers uh, was able to borrow money to uh, buy out, uh, buy control of a, a very small uh, bus line company. Uh, what he did was he sold the bus line terminal was very convenient in the middle of London, so everybody could get it to go wherever they were going. He sold the uh, terminal uh, to real estate uh, speculators, made enough money to pay off uh, the money uh, that he'd borrowed to buy the bus line and moved the terminal way to the outside of London, so you had to take a a long subway uh, ride to get to the bus line. And he did this, he bought up all of the different bus lines and all of a sudden it became much harder to take uh, uh, a bus in England. And of course, once the bus line was privatized, they cut all of the uh, services to smaller area, outlying areas of London or uh, area, uh, areas that weren't making a profit and uh, there weren't many buses going many places. Same thing happened with the railroads. They privatized the railroads, rail, railway service went way down, the prices tripled. Uh, the cost, uh, by privatizing public utilities, you added not a huge monopoly rent uh, but you also added a, a, a huge interest charges because you had financiers coming in and saying, let's buy this railroad, let's buy this bus line, let's let's buy this. The banks would lend uh, money to uh, speculators or takeover artists or raiders uh, to buy these big uh, companies, and they immediately would buy a, a, comp- uh, a public utility that was uh, electricity that was ma- making a or water company that was selling water at a low price, they would triple, quadruple, uh, and 10 times. Uh, every All the prices went so up that England was deindustrialized. Uh, something similar happened in the United States under Reagan. Uh, he began to privatize as much as possible. Uh, he And when he would privatize a company, he would uh, 
not only privatize them at, uh, and they would be sold at uh, whatever they were earning, uh, it was sort of a multiple of their earnings, a price earnings ratio. But then Reagan de, uh, deregulated everything. Uh, uh, he had, uh, they were called uh, the crazies from uh, Utah, uh, Mrs. Gorsuch. Uh, the uh, mother of the Supreme Court justice uh, wanted to deregulate uh, absolutely everything, give away the public domain, let people, uh, uh, let foresters cut down the forest without charge, uh, let oil companies uh, dig without charge. It was a bonanza for the rentier class. It was a bonanza for the rent extractors. And uh, the cost of living uh, went way up. Uh, same thing with uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, banking. Banking was deregulated, and uh, the first thing you had was a gigantic savings and loan fraud. Uh, you can make uh, most money in banking. You can make by fraud. Uh, my colleague at Kansas City, Bill Black, wrote a book. Uh, the best way to rob a bank is to own one, and he uh, uh, was one of the uh, prosecutors in the. Uh, uh, savings and loan crisis. Uh, you then, uh, uh, L, uh, Reagan appointed uh, a, a corporate lobbyist, uh, Alan Greenspan, is head of the Federal Reserve, and uh, he essentially uh, refused to regulate the banks. He said it wouldn't pay a bank to actually be dishonest because then people wouldn't use it. Well, uh, if a bank dishonest, if, and you're a robber, that's the bank you want to use. You want to say, I want to buy money so that I can buy up uh, uh, this uh, industry, triple the prices, and, and hurt the economy. That's how I make money. Uh, and there was there was no oversight. There was no idea of uh, the public interest. And that's what neoliberalism is. If neoliberalism means there is no government, then there is no... Uh, public agency that's looking for the public interest and trying to shape the market to serve rising living standards, lowering the cost of living, and uh, promoting industrial growth. Uh, you have uh, ex you have really uh, a reversion to uh, what life was like before capitalism, and it's uh, something like neo-feudalism. Before we go to the break, I'm going to I'm going to be very unfair to you and ask you a large question and ask you to try to do it in a short amount of time. But you mentioned somebody very important in the book, I think uh, several times, um, and it's somebody who I think to a large extent is unknown by a lot of our contemporary listeners and viewers, and that's Joseph Schumpeter. You talk about Schumpeter and the idea of creative destruction, and this is one of these principles of capitalism that I think does need to be understood and discussed at length. So how does creative destruction relate to our traditional understanding of what we might call classical economics or, or economic orthodoxy. And then the second part of that is how has the financialized capital sy capitalist system inverted the concept of creative destruction? Well, Schumpeter tried to put Marx's ideas in a middle-class language uh, without the socialist uh, 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 tinge on it. And Marx had said that uh, industrial capitalism was a competition to lower cost. And he, Marx said, capitalism is revolutionary. And what it was revolutionary was, it was getting rid of all of the fa false costs of production, the needless costs. Society doesn't need landlords uh, to produce. It doesn't need bankers, really, just to uh, make uh, unproductive loans. It doesn't need monopolists. It, uh, the uh, Industrial countries fight against each other to lower the cost of production so that their labor can undersell 
uh, other labor, uh, largely by having government pick up the cost, as I, as I mentioned. Well, uh, Schumpeter said, uh, uh, look at uh, when uh, the steel industry uh, in America uh, w- was built. Uh, the head of U- uh, U.S. Steel uh, built had just built a factory, and then all of a sudden they heard about uh, how the Germans were building their uh, factory. This brand new factory they just built was torn down and a whole new modern technical factory was built. Schumpeter said, uh, as scientific product, uh, science advances, uh, capital becomes more and more productive with higher technology. Uh, that's counted in America's labor productivity, but he says there are new ways of organizing capital, and uh, you have a new industry and a new firm that is going to adopt the new technology and undersell the price that the old firms uh, sold, and uh, it'll be the innovators are going to end up underselling the old guard who don't innovate, and uh, that's going to lower the cost, and uh, that's how capitalism drives forward by driving costs. What you're destroying is the old technology that really doesn't pay anymore. Well, when Marx talked about creative destruction, he meant really creative destruction. In other words, you're destroying a whole economy that had a rentier class. Uh, Schumpeter only talked about technological creative destruction. He didn't go whole socialist and say, wait a minute, what what, uh, you're you're really doing is uh, a nation is competing with another nation to minimize the cost of production by getting rid of its overhead class getting rid of its landlords, getting rid of everybody who's unproductive, getting rid of its military spending, for the, uh, uh, for that matter. And so all of a sudden, uh, the uh, what his uh, uh, the neoliberals picked up was the word destruction. And they said, destruction is good. Let's, uh, for instance, uh, one way that we can lower cost is uh, to deindustrialize the United States. Let's, uh, we don't, American labor's paid too much. Let's, uh, uh, let's lower labor labor costs, what we really want to do is exactly what the current head of the Federal Reserve wants to do, cause unemployment. Marx called this the reserve army of the unemployed. And uh, in the 1980s, uh, and especially under Clinton, uh, mainly in the 1990s, uh, they said, well, we can cause permanent unemployment so that capitalists can really have low-priced labor. Let's move everything to China and Asia where uh, there's low price. So uh, what creative destruction meant for the neoliberals was let's destroy the United States industrial economy and uh, we can make money by uh, shifting it to uh, uh, China. China will be the innovator and the innovator is having cheaper uh, cheaper labor uh, that doesn't cost as much as American labor. Uh, and uh, that sort of turned uh, the idea of creative destruction from something driving economies forward towards more productivity to deindustrializing and leaving a hollowed out economy. And the other part of that that should be noted is the fact that you now have an economy where there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of companies and various other enterprises that should have long since been destroyed, but continue to exist as these zombie entities sort of feeding off of capital. Well, many of these zombies are uh, uh, zombies because of the debt uh, that they've taken on. There's been so much uh, corporate raiding. Uh, that was the other thing that happened under uh, uh, under Reagan. Uh, before the 1980s, corporate uh, banks wouldn't lend money to corporate raiding. It wasn't considered very nice. Uh, but first, Drexel Burnham 
and their law firm, Skadden Arps, uh, said, well, let's uh, uh, let's uh, begin borrowing money uh, to buy up uh, companies and uh, we can uh, essentially uh, loot them for profit. And uh, I go into uh, great detail there, as I did in my uh, 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 the earlier book, uh, Killing the Host. Uh, and it became a predatory uh, takeover, not a productive takeover. Banks didn't lend to create new companies. They created debt to take over companies, and the debt was added onto the company's expenses. You were adding to the cost of production just the opposite of uh, the creative destruction and cutting costs that Schumpeter talked about. Schumpeter's creative destruction was cutting costs. The Reagan and neoliberalism creative destruction is to destroy companies by adding the cost and then letting them go bankrupt after you've uh, already uh, looted them and, and paid out all of their capital to yourself. Okay, uh, we are well past the time for a break. Let's take a quick break. On the other side, I want to talk a lot about what's going on today and how we can understand some of the things that are happening today as it relates to some of these larger concepts. I'll continue the conversation with Michael Hudson. Again, the book, Counterpunch, uh, From Counterpunch, The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism. Go on the website, get a copy of the book, get two copies, give one to your friends. Okay, we will come right back on the other side of the break with Michael Hudson, stay with us. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes Saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about sufferer at all Joshua said One man have too many While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and heads Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sister Socialism is people pulling together Would you believe me? Love and togetherness That's what it means Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Do you believe me? People pulling together. Oh. Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Socialism is love for your brother. 
poverty and hunger is what we are fighting. Socialism is sharing with your And we are back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Michael Hudson. I mentioned it before the break, but let me just reiterate the point. Counterpunch is where you can go to get an e- an ebook, uh, Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism. If you are like me and desperately want a physical hardcover book in your hands that you can carry with you to the beach and get stained with uh, drinks and so forth, then you should go and get yourself a hard copy online and um, wherever you can find them. So these books are a essential. Really, all of Michael Hudson's books are essential, so I highly recommend that you do that. Um, All right, Michael, coming back to the conversation, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the financialized global economy, but specifically as it regards debt. What role does debt play in this financialized global economy? Because debt today functions very differently than it has historically, doesn't it? Well, the theory historically, uh, a century ago, was that if you run into debt, uh, debts can be paid by uh, pro- uh, pro- investing the proceeds productively to make them enough money to pay. Adam Smith said uh, the rate of profit was usually two times the interest rate because you, you make a profit of $100, uh, uh, you pay half of that, $50 to the banker, and or financier, and you have fifty percent in profit, and it ends up uh, you're in a fifty-fifty profit sharing with the uh, creditor. But uh, now uh, there's uh, debt is not created to actually make an income. Uh, you if you buy a house uh, to live in, that doesn't uh, add to your income. If you borrow from a credit card, uh, that doesn't uh, it, it mean give you an ability to earn more. Or if you're a global South country, Latin American country, uh, the IMF will lend you money uh, to help the uh, domestic kleptocrats uh, get their money out of the country before there's a devaluation. Then you devalue and all of a sudden uh, you're you're in trouble. Well, uh, people borrowed anyway uh, to buy houses because they don't, under uh, today's economy and under finance capitalism, you don't get wealthy by making profits. Uh, Almost all the wealth of the richest Americans, the richest Europeans, they didn't save up their wages. They didn't save up their profits. They make it by capital gains. And they make capital gains by the banks lending so much more money to real estate. Uh, A house is worth whatever a bank is going to lend. And banks are lending more and more of the house's value uh, to, uh, 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 to whoever wants is willing to pay them more. So uh, finance capitalism doesn't add to production. It doesn't add to profits. It uh, it adds to uh, paper wealth by inflating the prices of stocks, inflating the prices of uh, bonds, and inflating uh, housing prices. But suppose you're a global South country in Latin America. Look at what's going to happen this summer. Uh, you know that uh, oil prices are going way up because uh, America, uh, the Biden administration, has uh, put sanctions against Russian oil and gas, and that means leaves American oil companies in control of the world oil, oil trade, and they raise their profits enormously. The stock market may be going down. Oil companies are going way up. Uh, food, they've also, uh, Biden has said, you can't buy uh, grain 
uh, from Russia. So uh, the gr grain prices are going way up, and that's one of the mainstays of America's balance of payments. It's grain exports. Uh, essentially, think of America as a uh, gas station and farms with atom bombs. Uh, I think that's how uh, John McCain had uh, described Russia, but he was describing America. Uh, very often uh, when you accuse a country of being something, you're accusing yourself. So uh, America's making a killing on uh, oil and on, on uh, uh, grain prices, and it's raising its interest rates while telling other countries like England and Japan, keep your interest rates low. So the dollar is getting much more expensive relative to European, English, and uh, South African, and uh, other third world currencies. How are these countries going to pay their uh, debts? How are they going to get by this September? Uh, they have a choice. If they uh, buy enough food to avoid starvation, if they buy enough energy and oil at the higher prices from American companies to uh, run their factories and to keep their lights on at night, then they can't afford to pay all of the dollar debts that they've borrowed. These dollar debts were simply lent to governments. They weren't lent to companies or governments to uh, build more means of production, to earn the money to repay the debt. They were just uh, lent uh, at the uh, cost of telling the government, well, do something to earn the money to repay us. And uh, the IMF advised governments, well, you earn money by uh, forbidding labor unions, you earn money by lowering uh, wages, and by devaluing your currency, because what you really devalue is the price of labor, because there's a fixed price for world materials, everybody pays the same price for machinery, everybody pays the same common price for oil, a devaluation means you're just lowering the price of labor and squeezing it. So there's going to be a huge labor squeeze and hence a political crisis in Latin America, uh, Africa, and uh, much of Asia. What is going to happen this, uh, uh, this, this fall? And countries are going to decide, do we want to go along with the American dollar standard and uh, continue to uh, pay debts and impoverish our country? Or do we want to join uh, the new bank, the BRICS bank that uh, uh, China and uh, India and Russia and Iran and uh, other countries are, are all creating? You're having a, a, a whole split of the world into two opposing economic systems. Uh, China is not a rival for America. Uh, America is not trying to industrialize like China is. America is trying to deindustrialize and make money financially. China is not trying to make money financially. It's trying to develop its economy and that of its, uh, uh, al its uh, allied countries on the Belt and Road to produce more. So you're, you're having for the first time uh, a, a choice of are you going to have industrial capitalism evolving into socialism like people expected a century ago? Or are you going to have American-style neoliberal finance capitalism that's going to make you poorer and poorer and impose austerity programs on you? I'm coming right back to that issue of the U.S. dollar in just a minute, but I want to finish up this issue of debt because you described debt and talked about it in its economic terms, and that's obviously critical, but debt is also a political weapon. It's one of the primary political weapons that has been used by the U.S. You talk about it in super imperialism. You talk about it in some of your other books as well. Can you explain how debt becomes a political weapon? You mentioned the IMF and austerity. That's an obvious example. What are some of the ways that the United States 
States and other former colonial powers are using debt and have used debt as a weapon? Well, right now, the uh, by following the World Bank and the U.S. Uh, uh, investment, countries are not able to break even in the balance of payments. So in order to avoid devaluation, they have to borrow from the IMF. And the IMF will not lend to a left-wing government. Uh, the big explosion in IMF loans now is to Ukraine. Uh, they'll make money uh, to Ukraine. Uh, they uh, would not make money to uh, left-wingers in Argentina, but now that Argentina uh, uh, would uh, had a right-wing uh, head, the IMF will make money to uh, countries to support right-wing client oligarchies. And uh, if it looks like there's going to be an election and the client oligarchy is going to be outvoted as uh, people vote for socialists, then, the, uh, then you're going to have the big oligarchy moving its money out of its currency into dollars or into foreign currencies. Uh, and uh, so the IMF will lend the uh, right-wing government enough money to keep the, their currency high enough so that their oligarchy can move their money out of Venezuela or, uh, or uh, Argentina or Brazil especially, at a high rate. And then uh, when the socialist government comes in, the IMF uh, won't lend the money. The uh, banks will gang up in a currency raid uh, against uh, uh, these currencies. The currency will devalue, causing a crisis. And uh, the IMF will say, well, you see, that's socialism. When you don't have an, a neoliberal running, that's what it is. And all of a sudden, uh, the uh, dollars that uh, Brazil or Argentina, I should not have mentioned Venezuela, or Argentina have uh, uh, borrowed, all of a sudden, uh, they have to pay much more of their domestic currency to repay the dollar debts. Uh, and if they can't repay them, then the bondholders uh, can grab whatever property they have. Uh, in the case of uh, Venezuela, uh, the IMF refused to lend money to Venezuela uh, uh, because it said you're a socialist government. Uh, uh, the Amer We're not going to lend money to you. We only lend to right-wing governments. Uh, the American government grabbed uh, Venezuela's uh, holdings in the uh, of uh, uh, oil distribution companies in the United States. England grabbed Venezuela's gold holdings. And America said, look, we're for, we're for democracy against autocracy. We're the democracy in the world. We get to say who Venezuela's president is because we elect them because we're America. That's what why we're a special country. And uh, we've appointed Mr. Guaido, uh, uh, who uh, isn't, uh, doesn't get many domestic votes, but we want Mr. Guaido to be the Venezuelan Boris Yeltsin, uh, who's promised to sell all of your uh, resources to the United States. Uh, and uh, so they just grabbed uh, Venezuela's uh, money, just like they've just grabbed all of Russia's uh, foreign exchange reserves uh, in, in the West. So uh, how uh, Venezuela couldn't pay uh, the foreign debt. Uh, and as a result, uh, it's not able to uh, fun, finance its trade and investment on credit because almost all trade and investment is just like buying a house. Uh, it, it's done on credit. And uh, the idea is supposed to be that, well, the credit is going to enable you to invest in more production and you'll make a, a profit, or if it's a government uh, infrastructure, the economy will grow and you'll get enough tax revenue uh, to pay 
uh, to pay the uh, creditor. But uh, that's not uh, what's happening at all. It's, uh, it's the reverse of everything that the uh, textbooks uh, talk about. So we're in an inside out world where uh, what the textbooks talk about is uh, 100 years out of date and uh, they don't talk about uh, predatory credit. The assumption is that all debts can be paid if you just can lower the, the wages and lower living standards enough to pay the upper 1%. You've also already touched on it a little bit, but I'd like you to go a little bit further and explain the role of the US dollar specifically in a financialized global economy. We know this is a reserve, the global reserve currency, oil is traded in dollars, et cetera. A lot of talk from a lot of different quarters, both on the left and the right, about a move away from the dollar towards a sort of a uh, bifurcated global economic system. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, at least in the near and the medium term. I mean, if you look at some of the numbers, global reserves held by all countries combined were in dollars of like 72% and now they're like 66%. So it's an extremely slow process that we're witnessing, but it is happening. So my question is, what is the role of the dollar in the modern financialized global economy? And what will the role of the dollar be given all of these changes, the sort of east-west split that we're seeing, et cetera? Well, that's really what my book, Super Imperialism, is all about. Uh, but I summarize it in its uh, economic uh, uh, form in uh, uh, The Destiny of Civilization. The whole, uh, the, the dollar uh, hegemony began in 1971 when the United States went off gold. Uh, uh, before 1971, when a country would run a balance of payments deficit, uh, it would have to uh, pay uh in, in its foreign reserves, mainly gold. Uh, when, uh, in the 1950s, 1960s, early 70s, America's entire balance of payments deficit was military spending. And so America's gold stock went down and down and down because as uh, America would spend money, uh, dollars, it would be converted into local currency and Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Uh, the Vietnam and uh, Southeast Asia were French colonies. They'd uh, send these dollars uh, to fr their head office in France, and uh, General de Gaulle would uh, decide, well, let's take these dollars and, and get gold. So the United States stopped paying in gold. Well, all of a sudden, what were people going to use to settle their balance of payments deficits? Uh, the United States, as a result of uh, emerging from World War II so strongly, controlled the world oil trade. Oil was priced in dollars. Most uh, products are priced in dollars. So the United States continued to spend money abroad and even accelerated its military spending abroad. So it was pumping more dollars into the into the world economy. Well, what would happen? happened to these dollars? They ended up, people would get them, they'd uh, turn the dollars into their central bank for domestic currency, for German marks or uh, Swiss francs or, or whatever. And uh, other central banks, what were they going to do with the dollars? In order to prevent their currency from going up, they would recycle the dollars to the United States and buy treasury bonds. And so uh, in effect, the United States was getting a free ride internationally. It could simply print dollars and other countries would end up by keeping their savings in dollars. Imagine that you went to a grocery store and you'd uh, buy your groceries by writing an IOU and uh, you'd go back the next week and say, well, you know, another IOU. And uh, the grocery store would say, well, wait a minute, what am I going to do with these IOUs? Can you pay? You'd say, no, I can't pay. Maybe you can 
uh, uh, use these IOUs to pay your uh, suppliers, the people who give you your vegetables and your milk and your meats, uh, but I can't pay. Well, that's the position the United States is in. It, it, uh, other people have kept their savings in the United States thinking that the United States was secure because everybody knows the United States can simply print its own dollars. It can't go bankrupt because it can create as many dollars as it wants, as we've seen in quantitative easing. Uh, so all of a sudden, uh, uh, the United States has been able to spend whatever it wants. And other countries, if they're running a balance of payments deficit, have to borrow dollars by raising their interest rates to borrow. And raising the interest rates will slow other economic activity. But the United States doesn't have to raise its interest rates. It can do whatever they want. That's why it's the exceptional country. Uh, well, right now that it's begun to grab the uh, foreign reserves of Venezuela and uh, Russia, uh, everybody's afraid to hold dollars anymore. And uh, they're beginning to move out of it. Uh, it it's a very slow move so far. It, uh, it, they're moving out every single month. Russia, China, uh, other countries are replacing dollars with gold or with uh, Chinese currency or with uh, each other's uh, currency, and it's still very uh, happening very slowly. But uh, amazingly enough, uh, President Biden's war, uh, with uh, the NATO war in Ukraine, uh, and the grabbing of uh, Russian uh, foreign reserves has ended this free ride. You'd think that the one thing that the United States would try to do was keep this idea of writing debts, writing debts, without any idea of how you're going to repay. Well, all of a sudden, countries are cashing in. Uh, they're, they're getting rid of the dollar. And if they don't use the dollar, if they begin to uh, denominate trade, uh, say, between India and Russia uh, in rubles and Indian currency uh, and uh, Chinese currency, then uh, there won't be any need for the dollar and it won't have this free trade. How is it a free ride? How is it going to be able to keep spending on its almost 800 military bases around the world if the dollar goes down and down and down because uh, all of a sudden people uh, are making the United States uh, be like a third world country? Well, Michael, that all sounds well and good, but the pushback from that would be, but no, no investors around the world look at China as a safe place to park their money. It still remains the U.S. Treasury's market that people are rushing back to, to park their assets, their wealth, to protect themselves against global instability, etc. China doesn't seem to have any interest in moving towards an open market model. So the idea that China uh, or a bank sponsored by China is somehow going to present a true alternative to this U.S.-centric capitalist system seems a bit far-fetched, no? You're right. Uh, China has no intention at all of, uh, of, become, of becoming a home for other countries borrowing. It wants to minimize... If, if uh, uh, China would uh, do what the United States do and create uh, an uh, investment vehicle itself, then uh, dollars and uh, uh, British sterling and others would flow into it. And then China would be in a debt, a debt, a liability. If you put money into a bank, uh, uh, then uh, this is a liability. The bank owes you money. China doesn't want to owe any money at all 
to foreign private investors, and it doesn't want to provide a safe haven for foreign investors. So the when people talk about the BRICS bank, they're not talking about a bank uh, for private uh, investors at all. They're talking only about a means of settling balance of payments deficits among governments. Uh, this bank is only going to be for governments uh, to create its own special drawing rights or arrange its own uh, Currency, currency swaps. Uh, private investors will continue to uh, uh, invest in the, uh, put their money in uh, U.S. Treasury uh, securities because the U.S. Treasury can keep on printing them. And uh, it, it's still the uh, measure of value by which uh, oil and uh, raw materials and minerals and uh, 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 movies uh, are uh transferred. So you're having a bifurcation between a monetary system that only works for governments and the monetary system that works for uh, the private sector. And one of the aspects of this uh, bifurcation or this split that has really come to the fore since Russia's invasion in Ukraine is this idea of U.S. financial imperialism. I think this is something that a lot of people didn't really pay close enough attention to in the previous decade. The U.S. tried this out. We saw this, of course, with Venezuela. We saw it with Iran, a number of other countries, the freezing of reserves, the sanctions, all of the other tools that the U.S. Treasury uses. So my question to you is has U.S. financial imperialism or the tools of U.S. hegemony on the financial side, has that exposed the U.S. to much of the world in your view? Here's the problem, that uh, most of the debts of uh, uh, the global South, Latin America, of, of all countries are denominated in U.S. dollars. Uh, and the idea of debts is you ha- they bear interest and you have to keep rolling them over. You have to pay interest and amortization, just as if you uh, have a mortgage. Well, all, uh, all of this is coming to a head, as I mentioned, this fall. Because if you're a uh, uh, the, the average uh, Latin American or African or uh, South Asian country, uh, something has to give. You can't afford to buy your food and energy and pay your foreign debts. So there's going to be the threat of default. And if there's a threat of default, then this whole superstructure of uh, uh, of debts where banks uh, uh, guarantee debts, uh, their derivatives betting out, can the debts be repaid or not? Uh, what will the value of the debts be? How much will the, uh, you'll have something like occurred in the 1980s after Mexico couldn't pay. Uh, interest rates for Brazil and Argentina went up to 45%. And uh, in Mexico, interest rates on government dollar debts went up to 22%. Uh, Something like that's going to occur again. The prices of bonds of these countries will fall. Well, the countries are are now going to say uh, uh, to Russia, uh, for instance, we would like to buy your oil. You know, we're not going to follow the U.S. sanctions. We'd like to buy your uh, grain. And they'll say to China, we'd like to buy your manufacturers. And uh, Russia and China can say, well, we'd like to uh, lend you the money to, uh, uh, to uh, so, and then you'll repay us because we know you don't have the money now. Uh, but if we lend you the money, I don't see how you can afford to repay us. Uh, the money we would lend you to buy our oil and food uh, would just be give you enough money so you could pay your dollar debts. Why would we want to do something like that? That's the crisis that's going to occur uh, in in the fall. Uh, People are going to have to decide, uh, well, can we default on the dollar debts? Uh, If they default, 
then they can, uh, uh, what will the U.S. do? Well, uh, say Brazil uh, could say, uh, well, we've already, we're, we're part of the BRICS uh, and the BRICS bank, and uh, uh, they're going to lend us money, but uh, we can't afford uh, to, to pay you, uh, uh, you dollar bondholders. Now the United States will say, well, you know, if you do that, then we'll put sanctions on you. And uh, the Brazil will say, well, if you put sanctions on us and we can't buy your exports, then you're just hurting yourself. You're hurting your own exporters uh, and you're driving us uh, to countries that will export for ourselves. So and uh, the United States is going to have to say, who are we going to put uh, in uh, first? Whose interests are we going to look after? Will it be our dollar bondholders and the banks or will it be our corporations uh, that make the exports uh, to these countries? Something has to give. There's not enough money both to buy our exports and to pay the bondholders. What's going to happen? Well, nobody knows yet, but that's what the fight's going to be about. And to your point, as we uh, approach the end of our conversation here, to your point, um, and I guess to the point that I was just making about financial imperialism, the United States has, I think for the first time, or at least for the first time, a notable example where the United States has essentially manufactured a major economy's default. And that's what's happened with Russia. They're claiming that Russia has defaulted on its debt, but that's because they have prevented Russia from actually repaying that debt because the debt has to be repaid in dollars and the Russians can't do that for all of the reasons that are obvious. So the question is, do you believe that this is going to cause a, a, a shattering of faith in the United States as a, uh, as a good faith uh, partner for other countries that might also find themselves in the crosshairs? Well, everybody's talking about that. Uh, this is exactly what uh, the Global South uh, meetings are all about. And uh, uh, you're even having Saudi Arabia, uh, which is one of the biggest dollar holders that uh, talk about that. And that's what uh, President Biden is meeting with uh, uh, bin Laden uh, uh, this week. Not bin Laden, the uh, MSB uh, uh, this, this week about. Uh, th that's what uh, everybody realizes that we've run to the end of a whole cycle that uh, of expansion that be debt expansion that began in 1945 when the, the almost the whole world uh, emerged from the war with no private sector debt now it's a huge private sector debt uh, government debt went way down because there wasn't a war on but now uh, there's uh, government debt just to finance the uh, the failure of the global south countries to develop uh, something has to give and uh, th that's not what uh, uh, was it, uh, supposed to happen in the textbooks, uh, but that's what's happening. And my book is really about uh, the different dynamics that are shaping uh, the way in which uh, the world is going to be uh, dividing into these two uh, separate uh, trade and investment and monetary blocks. And between, final question, between the uh, war in Ukraine, all of the turmoil surrounding that, and then, of course, everything that has happened since the uh, beginning of COVID, the disruption to global supply chains, all of these things, does this mean, and I know this is a very general question, but take it in whatever direction you'd like, does this mean that we have reached what might be called the end of the globalized neoliberal era? Absolutely. That's the one thing that uh, for the last two years, if you read the speeches of President Putin, President Xi, uh, the Indian speeches, uh, they've all realized that that globalization is over and 
especially if you read what President Biden and what Donald Trump had said. Donald Trump said, uh, we're now uh, ending globalization. Amer we're putting America first. Any deal we make, America has to come out uh, on top. And uh, that's pretty much, uh, it was the United States itself that has uh, led the uh, breakup of globalization by uh, becoming so exploitative uh, and one-sided uh, in, uh, with other countries that uh, it's uh, gaining at other countries' expense and other countries are driven to protect themselves by uh, de-dollarizing. And everybody had been talking about de-dollarization for uh, maybe three or four years, but nobody expected that the United States itself would lead the de-dollarization by the, uh, uh, the Biden administration. Uh, the word used is shooting yourself in your own foot. Uh, which basically is what the uh, uh, the, ne the neocons uh, are doing in the Biden administration, and uh, that's uh, that, uh, you have both from the U.S. point of view and from uh, 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 China, Russia, India, Iran, uh, uh, the BRICS countries. Uh, there's a, a common interest in going their own way. But wasn't that really a product of the capitalist forces that were behind Trump and those elements that Trump represented? I mean, there was clearly a divide in capital. You have a neoliberal globalized capital that opposed Trump and a lot of those ideas. And then you had a sort of a domestic petrochemicals uh, capital uh, formation that was supportive of Trump, the dirty polluting industries, et cetera, construction industries, petty bourgeois, uh, small business owners, et cetera. So to me, this, I mean, not to get too Marxist about it, but it represented a split within the ruling class, a split within the capitalist class more than, you know, America necessarily deciding to go its own way. Well, you, the split you described really is between raw materials uh, suppliers, oil, gas, mining, and monopolists on the one hand against uh, industry uh, on the other. And so we're right back to uh, the fight that ca uh, industrial capitalism was supposed to sweep aside uh, these rentier interests, and the rentiers are fighting back. And the question is, can America become a prosperous economy just by making money financially? and just by uh, making money by controlling monopolies that other people have to pay uh, uh, special commissions for and uh, monopoly rents like they'd have to pay for a Hollywood movie, uh, intellectual property rights, uh, uh, information technology. Can a country get uh, uh, preserve its living standards and get richer uh, without industry? Well, the answer uh, we saw from Trump is, well, the country is us, the 1%. We can get richer. Maybe not the 99%. Uh, so when we say America get richer, we mean our companies uh, and our sector, not uh, the people. The people, uh, that's, uh, uh, they don't really fit into the equation that we're talking about. So yes, there's a fight between uh, which uh, uh, companies and will, will America uh, be a rentier society? Will, what, uh, will Biden uh, appoint uh, anti-monopoly regulators to lower costs. Uh, can America continue to function with a, a 18 percent of its uh, GDP going for health care uh, instead of uh, providing uh, lower health care? 
uh, how can American industry, uh, even uh, information technology companies, compete if it has such expensive uh, health care uh, overhead that people have to pay, if it has such expensive uh, housing uh, uh, for rental or for purchase that people have to pay? Can America really get rich just on capital gains for its uh, real estate stocks and bonds and uh, uh, monopoly companies? That's uh, the question. And uh, uh, the idea of the 19th century is, no, that's, that was what feudalism was all about. Uh, it can't survive that way. Uh, so can America have a new feudalism uh, for its 1% uh, and somehow uh, survive? Uh, that's the question. I suppose that's the $25 trillion question, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yep. So, okay, we will leave it there. Michael Hudson, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I know I kept you over the time I said I would. Michael Hudson is the president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trends. He's an economist and author, many books to his name. I, of course, recommend Super Imperialism to understand so many of these dynamics and the brand new book, The Destiny of Civilization, Finance Capitalism, Industrial Capitalism, or Socialism. Get your ebook from Counterpunch. Get your hard copy wherever you wherever books are sold. My Michael Hudson, thank you, as always, for coming to Counterpunch and helping us understand all of these issues. Well, I'm glad we were able to cover uh, the ground that we did. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, thank you, as always. And we will chat again next time.